to enter out into that city that was the city at eight o'clock of a misty evening in November, to put your feet upon that buckling concrete, to step over grassy seams and make your way, hands in pockets, through the silence. That was what Mr. Leonard Meade most dearly loved to do. He would stand upon the corner of an intersection and peer down long moonlit avenues of sidewalk in four directions, deciding which way to go, but it really made no difference. He was alone in this world of A.D. 2053, or as good as alone, and with the final decision made, a path selected, he would stride off, sending patterns of frosty air before him like the smoke of a cigar. Sometimes, he would walk for hours and miles and return only at midnight to his house, and on his way he would see the cottages and homes with their dark windows, and it was not unequal to walking through a graveyard where only the faintest glimmers of firefly light appeared and flickers behind the windows. Sudden gray phantoms seemed to manifest upon inner room walls where a curtain was still undrawn against the night, or there were whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. Mr. Leonard Mead would pause, cock his head, listen, look, and march on his feet making no noise on the lumpy sidewalk. For long ago, he had wisely changed his sneakers when strolling at night, because the dogs and the intermittent squads would parallel his journey with barkings if he wore hard heels, and lights might click on and faces appear, and an entire street be startled by the passing of a lone figure, himself in the early November evening. On this particular evening, he began his journey in a westerly direction, toward the hidden sea. There was a good crystal frost in the air, it cut the nose and made the lungs blaze like a Christmas tree inside. You could feel the cold light going on and off, all the branches filled with invisible snow. He listened to the faint push of his soft shoes through autumn leaves with satisfaction, and whistled a cold, quiet whistle between his teeth, occasionally picking up a leaf as he passed, examining its skeletal pattern in the infrequent lamplights as he went on, smelling its rusty smell. Hello in there, he whispered to every house on every side as he moved. What's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9? Where are the cowboys rushing? And do I see the United States Cavalry over the next hill to the rescue? The street was silent and long and empty, with only his, his shadow moving like the shadow of a hawk in mid-country. If he closed his eyes and stood very still, frozen, he could imagine himself upon the center of a plain, a wintry, windless Arizona desert with no house in a thousand miles and only dry riverbeds. The streets for company. What is it now? He asked the houses, noticing his, rich, his wristwatch. 8.30 p.m., time for a dozen assorted murders, a quiz, a review, a comedian falling off stage. Was that a murmur of laughter from within a, within a moon-white house? He hesitated, but went on. And when nothing more happened, he stumbled over a particularly uneven section of sidewalk. The cement was vanishing under flowers and grass. In ten years of walking by night or day for thousands of miles, he had never met another person walking. Not once in all that time. He came to a cloverleaf intersection, which stood silent, where two main highways crossed the town. During the day, it was, the thun it was a thunderous surge of cars. The gas stations opened, a great insect rustling and a ceaselessly jockeying for position as the scarab beetles, a faint incense puttering from their exhausts, skimmed homeward to the far directions. But now these days, too, were like streams in a dry season, all stone and bed and moon radiance. He turned back on a side street, circling around toward his home. He was within a block of his destination when the lone car turned a corner quite suddenly and flashed a fierce white cone of light upon him. He stood entranced, not unlike a night moth, stunned by the illumination, and then drawn toward it. 
a metallic voice called to him. Stand still. Stay where you are. Don't move. He halted. Put up your hands. The police, of course. But what a rare, incredible thing in a city of three million. There was only one police car left. Wasn't that correct? Ever since a year ago, 2052, the election year, the force had been cut down from three cars to one. Crime was ebbing and there was no need now for the police, save for this one lone car wandering and wandering the empty streets. Your name, said the police car. Almost got attacked by B. Your name, said the police car in a metallic whisper. He couldn't see the men in it, in it for the bright light in his eyes. Leonard Mead, he said. Speak up. Leonard Mead. Business or profession? I guess you'd call me a writer. No profession, said the police car as if, talking to himself. The light held him fixed, like a museum specimen. Needle thrust through chest. You might say that, said Mr. Mead. He hadn't written in years. Magazines and books didn't sell anymore. Everything went on in the tomb-like houses at night now. He thought continuing his fancy, the tombs, hill-lit by television light, where the people sat like the dead, the gray of multicolored lights, touching their faces, but never really touching them. No profession, said the phonograph's voice, hissing. What are you doing out? Walking, said Leonard Mead. Walking? Just walking, he said simply, but his face felt cold. Walking, just walking? Walking? Yes, sir. Walking where? For what? Walking for air. Walking to sea. Your address? I live in South St. James Street. And there is air in your house? You have an air conditioner, Mr. Mead? Yes. You have a viewing screen in your house to see with? No. No, there was a crackling, quiet that in itself was an accusation. Are you married, Mr. Mead? No. Not married, said the police voice behind the fiery beam. The moon was high and clear among the stars, and the houses were gray and silent. Nobody wanted me, said Leonard Mead with a smile. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Leonard Mead just waited in the cold night. Just walking, Mr. Mead. Yes, but you haven't explained for what purpose. I explained for air and to see and just to walk. Have you done this often? Every night for years. The police car sat in the center of the street with its radio throat faintly humming. Well, Mr. Mead, it said. Is that all? He asked politely. Yes, said the voice. Here, there was a sigh. A pop. The back door of the police car sprang wide. Get in. Wait a minute, I haven't done anything. Get in. I protest. Mr. Mead. He walked like a man suddenly drunk. As he passed the front window of the car, he looked in. As he had expected, there was no one in the front seat. No one in the car at all. Get in. He put his hand to the door and peered into the back seat, which was a little cell. A little black jail with bars. It smelled of riveted steel. It smelled of harsh antiseptic. It smelled too clean and hard and metallic. There was nothing soft there. Now if you had a wife to give you an alibi, said the iron voice. But, where are you taking me? The car hesitated, or rather gave a faint whirring click, as if information somewhere was dropping card by punch-slotted card under electronic eyes to the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. He got in. The door shut with a soft thud. The police car rolled through the night avenues, flashing its dim lights ahead. They passed one house on one street. A moment later, one house, an entire city of houses that were all dark. But this one particular house had all of its electric lights brightly lit. Every window allowed yellow illumination, square and warm in the cool darkness. That's my house, said Lena Reed. No one answered him. The car moved down the empty riverbed, streets and off away, leaving the empty streets with the empty sidewalks, no sound and no motion at all. The rest of the chill November night. Someone else should be telling this story. Someone who understands the funny kind of football they play down in South America. Back in Moscow, Idaho, we grab the ball and run with it. 
and the small but prosperous republic, which I'll call Perivia, they kick it around with their feet, and that is nothing to what they do to the umpire. One of the first things I learned when I got to Perivia, after various distressing adventures in the less democratic parts of South America, was the last year's match had been lost owing to the knavish dishonesty of the referee. He had, it seemed, penalized most of the players on the team, disallowing a goal, and generally made sure that the best side wouldn't win. This diatribe made me quite homesick, but remembering where I was, I merely commented, You should have paid him more money. We did, was the bitter reply, but the Panagorans got at him later. Too bad, I answered. It's hard nowadays to find an honest man who stays bought, the customs inspector, who'd just taken my last hundred dollar bill, had the grace to blush beneath his stubble as he waved me across the border. The next few weeks were tough, but presently I was in what I prefer to call the agricultural machinery business. The last thing I had time to bother about was football. I knew that my expensive imports were going to be used at any moment and wanted to make sure that this time my profit went with me when I left the country. Even so, I could hardly ignore the excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. Even so, I could hardly ignore excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. I'd go to a conference arranged with great difficulty and expense at a safe hotel, and half of the time, everyone would be talking about football. Gentlemen, I'd protest. Our next consignment of rotary drills is being unloaded tomorrow, and unless we get that permit from the Ministry of Agriculture, some busybody may open the cases, and then... Don't worry, my boy, General Sierra or Colonel Pedro would answer airily. That's already taken care of. Leave it to the army. I knew better than to retort, which army? And for the next ten minutes, I'd have to listen to arguments about football tactics and the best way of dealing with recalcitrant referees. It was then that Don Hernando Diaz's name came up for the first time. I knew of him as one of the country's leading industrialists, but he had an equal reputation as playboy, racing car driver, and scientific dilettante. It surprised me to learn that he was one of us, for he was a favorite of President Ruiz. Naturally, I had never met him. He had to be very particular about his friends, and there were few people who cared to meet me unless they had to. I suspected that something was happening when I took my place in the football stadium on that memorable day. If you think I had no wish to be there, you are quite correct. But Colonel Pedro had given me a ticket. He was unhealthy to hurt his feelings by not using it. There had been a slight delay in admitting the spectators. The police had done their best, but it takes time to search a 100,000 people for concealed firearms. The visiting team had insisted on this to the great indignation of the locals. The protests faded swiftly enough, however, as the art artillery accumulated at the check. Then a sweating band played the two national anthems. The teams were presented to El Presidente and his lady, and the cardinal blessed everybody. While we were waiting, I examined the program. 
a beautiful, fully produced affair that had been given to me by the lieutenant. It was tabloid size, printed on art paper and bound in metal foil that gleamed like silver. You could see your face in it, and I noticed a number of ladies using it to make their last-minute repairs and adjustments. I also noticed that this special victory souvenir issue had been paid for by an impressive list of subscribers, headed by himself, Don Hernando, who had himself, it seemed, presented 50,000 free copies to our gallant fighting men. If this was a bid for popularity, it seemed rather naive one, and surely President Ruiz wouldn't let half his army be bottled up in this stadium for the best part of an afternoon. These reflections were interrupted by the roar of the enormous crowd as play started. For the first ten minutes, it was a pretty open game, and I don't think there were more than three fights. The Peruvians just missed one goal. The ball was headed out so neatly that the frantic applause from the Panaguaran supporters, who had a special police guard and a fortified section of the stadium all to themselves, went quite unbooed. I began to feel disappointed. Why, if you change the shape of the ball, this might be a good-natured Idaho game. There was no real work for the Red Cross until nearly halftime, when three Peruvians and two Panaguarans, or it may have been the other way around, fused together in a magnificent melee, from which only one survivor emerged under his own power. The casualties were carted off amid much pandemonium, and there was a short break while replacements were brought up. This started the first major incident. The Peruvians complained that the other side's wounded were shaming so that fresh reserves be poured in. But the referee was adamant. The new men came on, and the background noise dropped just below the threshold of pain as the game resumed. The Panaguarans promptly scored. And though none of my neighbors actually committed suicide, several seemed close to it. The transfusion of new blood had apparently pepped up the visitors. Things looked bad for the home team. Their opponents were passing the ball with such skill that the Peruvians' defenses were as porous as a sieve. At this rate, I told myself, the ref can afford to be honest. His side will win anyway. And to give him his due, I'd seen no sign of any obvious bias so far. I didn't have long to wait. A last-minute rally by the home team blocked a threatened attack on the goal, and a mighty kick by one of the defenders sent the ball rocketing toward the other end of the field. Before it had reached the apex of its flight, the piercing shriek of the referee's whistle brought the game to a halt. There was a brief consultation between ref and the captains. The crowd was roaring its disapproval. What's happening now, I asked plaintively. The ref said our man was offsides. But how can he be? He's on top of his own goal. Shush, said the lieutenant, obviously unwilling to waste his enlightenment on my ignorance. I don't shush easily, but this time I let it go and tried to work things out for myself. It seemed that the ref had awarded the Panaguarans a free kick at our goal, and I could understand the way everybody felt about it. The ball soared through the air in a beautiful parabola, nicked the post and cannoned in. A mighty roar of anguish rose from the crowd, then died abruptly to a silence that was even more impressive. It was as if a great animal had been wounded and was bidding the time for its revenge. Despite the heat pouring down from the not-so-far vertical sun, 
I felt a sudden chill as if a cold wind had swept past me. Not for all the wealth of the Incas would I have changed places with the man sweating out there on the field in his bulletproof vest. We were two down, but there was still hope. A lot could happen before the end of the game. The Peruvians were on their medal now, playing with almost demonic intensity, like men who had accepted a challenge were going to show that they could beat it. The new spirit paid off promptly. The home team scored one impeccable goal within a couple of minutes, and the crowd went wild with joy. By this time I was shouting like everyone else and telling the, that referee things I didn't know I could say in Spanish. It was 1-2 now, and a 100,000 people were praying and cursing for the goal that would bring us level again. It came just after halftime. The ball had been passed to one of our forwards. He ran about 50 feet with it evaded a couple of defenders with some neat footwork and kicked it cleanly into the goal. It had scarcely dropped down from the net when the whistle blew again. Now what I wondered, he can't disallow that, but he did. The ball, it seemed, had been handled. I've got pretty good eyes and I never saw it, so I cannot honestly say that I blame anyone for what happened next. The police managed to keep the crowd off the field, though it was a touch and go for a minute. The two teams drew apart, leaving the center of the pitch bare except for the stubbornly defiant figure of the referee. He was probably wondering how he could make his escape from the stadium and was consoling himself with the thought that when this game was over, he could retire for good. The thin high bugle call took everyone completely by surprise. Everyone that is except for the 50,000 well-trained men who had been waiting for it with mounting impatience. The whole arena became instantly silent, so silent that I could hear the noise of the traffic outside the stadium. A second time that bugle sounded, and all the vast acreage of faces opposite me vanished in a blinding sea of fire. I cried out and covered my eyes for one horrified moment. I thought of atomic bombs and braced myself uselessly for the blast. There was no concussion, only that flickering veil of flame that beat even through my closed eyelids for long seconds, then vanished as swiftly as it had come. When the bugle blared out for the third and last time, everything was just as it had been before, except for one minor item. Where the referee had been standing, there was a small smoldering heap from which a thin column of smoke curled up in the still air. What in heaven's name had happened? I turned to my companion, who was as shaken as I was. Madre de Dios, I heard him mutter. I never knew it would do that. He was staring not at the small funeral down there on the field, but the handsome souvenir program spread across his knees, and then in a flash of incredulous comprehension I understood. Seldom do we realize just how much energy there is in sunlight. I've since looked it up. And the experts say that more than a horsepower hits every square yard of the earth. Those 50,000 well-trained fans with their tinfoil reflectors had intercepted most of the heat falling on one side of the enormous stadium and aimed it all in one direction, even allowing for the programs that were tilted accurately. The late ref must have absorbed the heat of about a thousand electric fires. He couldn't have felt much. It was as if he had dropped into a blast furnace. I doubted even the ingenious Don Hernando realized exactly what would happen when he had talked his trusting friend, President Riaz, into lending him the necessary manpower. The well-drilled fans had been told 
that the ref would merely be dazzled out of action for the game but i'm sure that no one had any regrets they played football for keeps in peruvia likewise politics while the game was continuing to its now predictable end beneath the benign gaze of a new and understandably docile referee my friends were hard at work when our victorious team had marched off the field the final score was fourteen and two everything had been settled there had been practically no shooting and as the president emerged from the stadium he was politely informed that a seat had been reserved for him on the morning flight to mexico city as general sierra remarked to me when i boarded the same plane as his late chief we let the army win the football match while it was busy we won the country so everybody's happy though i was too polite to voice any doubts i could not help thinking that this was rather short-sighted attitude several million panaguarans were very unhappy indeed and sooner or later there would be a day of reckoning i suspect that it's not far away last week a friend of mine who one of the world's top experts in our specialized field indiscreetly blurted out one of his problems to me joey said why the devil would anyone want me to build a guided missile that can fit inside a football ready ready now soon did the scientists really know will it happen today will it look look see for yourself the children pressed to each other like so many roses so many weeds intermixed peering out for a look at the hidden sun it rained it had been raining for seven years thousands upon thousands of days compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain with the drum and gush of water with sweet crystal fall of showers and the concussion of storms so heavy that they were tidal waves come over the islands a thousand forests had been crushed under the rain and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again and this was the way life was forever on the planet venus and this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization and live out their lives it's stopping it's stopping yes yes margaret stood apart from them from these children who could even remember a time when there wasn't rain and rain and rain they were all nine years old and if there had been a day seven years ago when the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world they could not recall sometimes at night she heard them stir in remembrance and she knew they were dreaming and remembering gold or a yellow crayon or a coin large enough to buy the world with she knew they thought they remembered a warmness like a blushing in the face and the body and the arms and legs and trembling hands but then they always awoke to the tatting drum the endless shaking down of clear bead necklaces upon the roof the walk the gardens the forest and their dreams were gone all day yesterday they had read in class about the sun about how like a lemon it was and how hot and they had written small stories or essays or poems about it i think the sun is a flower that blooms for just an hour that was margaret's poem read in a quiet voice in the still classroom while the rain was falling outside oh you didn't write that protested one of the boys i did said margaret i did william said the teacher but that was yesterday now the rain was slackening and the children were crushed in great thick windows where's the teacher 
She'll be back. She'd better hurry. We'll miss it. They turned on themselves like a feverish wheel, all tumbling spokes. Margaret stood alone. She was a very frail girl who looked as if she had been lost in the rain for years. And the rain had washed out the blue from her eyes and red from her mouth and the yellow from her hair. She was an old photograph, dusted from an album, whitened away. If she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. Now she stood, separate, staring at the rain and the loud, wet world beyond the huge glass. What are you looking at, said William. Margaret said nothing. Speak when you're spoken to. He gave her a shove, but she did not move. Rather, she let herself be moved only by him and nothing else. They edged away from her. They would not look at her. She felt them go away, and this was because she would play no games with them in the echoing tunnels of the underground city. If they tagged her and ran, she stood blinking after them, and did not follow. When the class sang songs about happiness and life and, ga <coughs> and games, her lips barely moved. Only when they sang about the sun and the summer did her lips move as she watched the drenched windows. And then, of course, the biggest crime of all was that she had come only five years <clears throat> was that she had come here only five years ago from Earth, and she remembered the sun and the sky was when she was four in Ohio, and they they had been on Venus all their lives, and they had been only two years old when the last sun came out, and had long since forgotten the color and heat of it, and the way it really was. But Margaret remembered it's like a penny, she said once, eyes closed. No, it's not, the children cried. It's like a fire, she said, in the stove. You're lying, you don't remember, cried the children. But she remembered and stood quietly apart from all of them, watching the pattern <coughs> and watched the patterning window. And once a month ago, she'd refused to shower in the school shower rooms. It clutched her hands to her, he her ears over her head, screaming the water mustn't touch her head. So after that, dimly, dimly she sensed it. She was different, and they knew her difference, and kept away. There was talk that her father and mother were taking her back to Earth next year. It seemed vital to her that they do so. It would mean the loss of thousands of dollars to her family, and so the children hated her for all these reasons of big and little consequence. They hated her pale snow face, her waiting silence, her thinness, and her possible future. Get away, the boy gave her another shove. What are you waiting for? Then for the first time she turned and looked at him, and looked at him, and what she was waiting for was in her eyes. Well, don't wait around, cried the boy savagely. You won't see nothing. Her lips moved. Nothing, he cried. It was all a joke, wasn't it? He turned to the other children. Nothing's happening today, is it? They all blinked at him, and then understanding, laughed and shook their heads. Nothing, nothing. Oh, but Margaret whispered, her eyes hopelessly. But this is the day. The scientists predict... They say, they know, the sun. All a joke, said the boy, and seized her roughly. Everyone, let's put her in a closet before the teacher comes. No, said Margaret, falling back. They surged about her, caught her up and bore her protesting, and then pleading and then crying back into a tunnel, a room, a closet, where they slammed door, where they slammed and locked the door. They stood looking at the door and saw it trembled from her beating and throwing herself against it. They, th they heard her muffled cries, then smiling, they turned and went out, back down the tunnel, just as the teacher arrived. Ready, children? She glanced at her watch. Yes, said everyone, are we all here? Yes. The rain slacked still more. 
They crowded to the huge door and the rain stopped. It was as if the midst of a film concerning an avalanche, a tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption. Something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus, thus muffling and finally cutting off all noise, all the blasts and repercussions and thunders, and in second ripped the film <coughs> ripped the film from the protect projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide which did not move or tremored. The world ground to a standstill. The silence was so immense and unbelievable that you felt your ears had been stuffed or you had lost your hearing altogether. The children put their hands to their ears. They stood apart. The door slid back and the smell of the silent, waiting world came into them. The sun came out. It was the color of flaming bronze and it was very large and the <clears throat> and the sky around it was a blazing blue tile color, and the jungle burned with sunlight as the children, released from their spell, rushed out, yelling into the springtime. Now don't go too far, called the teacher after them. You've only two hours, you know. You wouldn't want to get caught out. But they were running and turning their faces up to the sky and feeling the, the sun on their cheeks like a warm iron. They were taking off their jackets and letting the sun burn their arms. Oh, it's better than the sun lamps, isn't it? Much, much better. They stopped running and stood in the great jungle that covered Venus, that grew and never stopped growing, tumultuously, even as you watched it. It was a nest of octopi clustering up, great arms of flesh-like weed wavering, flowering in this brief springtime. It was the color of rubber and ash, this jungle from the many years without sun. It was the color of stones and white cheeses and ink. It was the color of the moon. The children lay out laughing on the jungle mattress and heard a sigh and squeak under the resilient and alive. They ran among the trees. They slipped and fell. They pushed each other. They played hide and seek and tag. But most of all, they squinted at the sun until tears ran down their faces. They put their hands up to the yellowness and that amazing blueness and they breathed of the fresh, fresh air and listened and listened to the silence which suspended them in a blessed sea of no sound and no motion. They looked at everything and savored everything. Then wildly, like animals escaped from their caves, they ran and ran in shouting circles. They ran for an hour and did not stop running. And then, in the midst of their running, one of the girls wailed. Everyone stopped. The girl standing in the open held out her hand. Oh, look, look, she said, trembling. They came slowly to look at her open palm. In the center of it, cupped and huge, was a single raindrop. She began to cry. Looking at it, they looking at it, they glanced quietly at the sun. Oh, oh! A few cold drops fell on their noses and their cheeks and their mouths. The sun faded behind a stir of mist. A wind blew cold around them. They turned and started to walk back toward the underground houses. The underground house their hands at their sides, their smiles vanishing away. A boom of thunder startled them, and like leaves before a new hurricane, they tumbled upon each other and ran. Lightning struck ten miles away, five miles away, a mile, a half a mile. The sky darkened into midnight in a flash. The sky darkened into midnight in a flash. They stood in the doorway of the underground for a moment until it was raining hard. Then they closed the door and heard the gigantic sound of the rain falling in tons and avalanches everywhere and forever. Will it be seven more years? 
Yes, seven. Then one of them gave a little cry. Margaret. What? She's still in the closet where we locked her. Margaret. They stood if someone had driven them, like so many stakes, into the floor. They looked at each other, then looked away. They glanced out at the world that was raining now and raining steadily. They could not meet each other's glances. Their faces were solemn and pale. They looked at their hands and their feet, and their feet, their faces down. Margaret, one of the girls said, Well, no one moved. Go on, whispered the girl. They walked slowly down the hall in the sound of cold rain. They turned through the doorway to the room in the sound of storm and thunder, lightning on their faces blue and terrible. They walked over to the closet door slowly and stood by it. Behind the closet door was only silence. They unlocked the door, and even more slowly. They unlocked the door, even more slowly, and let Margaret out.